The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined here at The Spectator's offices by uh, Yoram Hazoni, who we recently had on the podcast. He is the author of Conservatism, A Rediscovery, among other books. And we are meeting the morning after the midterms, and I think we have to talk about that. Must we? Must, I'm afraid we must. <laughs> because, again, American democracy seems to have thrown up a, an imponderable. The House, it looks as though there isn't a great red wave in favour of the Republicans, but they are going to win it. And the Senate is very, very close. And it looks as though it's going to be decided at this moment. It could be wrong by the time this is broadcast. But it looks at this moment as though it will be decided by Georgia probably in four weeks' time. What's going on in American democracy? Let's start with that very large question. American democracy is not in good shape. In fact, I don't, I don't think we've seen anything, anything remotely like this during our lifetimes. The basic story is that the last, two, the last two presidential elections have been suspect in the eyes of very, very large numbers of Americans. You know, I don't know what the numbers are, but it, there's 20 or 30 or 40 percent of the population that thought that the 2016 election of Donald Trump was in, in some way foul play, was rigged. And there, there's comparable, you know, large proportion of the population that felt that way about the 2020 election. So this suspicion that's hanging over democracy, I mean, if, if it continues and deep, deepens, this is fatal. The, base, the basis for democracy is that there has to be sufficient trust in order to be able to have clear election results, agree on what they are, and then peaceful transition of power, as they say. How long that can continue under these circumstances is unclear. To what extent does it all become a conversation about Donald Trump? Because however much people don't like talking about Donald Trump, he is always this figure around which the political conversation orbits. I think it has very, very little to do with Donald Trump. And the, the reason that I say this is that at the same time that Trump was being declared illegitimate in 2016, we got to see th- three years of breakdown here in the UK over Brexit. And the kinds of accusations that that it had been rigged, that it was unfair, that it was illegitimate, that it was unjust, that it, that it had to be overturned, the same kind of intensity of accusations were heard here, and that without the you know the, the personality of Donald Trump to draw draw fire. I, I can add that I live in in Jerusalem, and four years ago the the Israeli political system took up this this Anglo-British mantra of Netanyahu is, is not legitimate, he can't be the prime minister, and the consequence has been five consecutive elections in four years mm. because the system simply can't function with half of it saying that the other half is illegitimate. Well, I think what, what you write about in your books about nationalism and conservatism, you seem to be pushing towards a new realignment, let's say, on the right of uh, national conservatism. Yes. And that that might break the kind of 
gridlock or meltdown stasis that we're seeing in democracies in various countries. At the same time, people have been saying that for quite a long time now, since 2016. And in fact, as the midterms showed last night, the elections are becoming even more confusing, controversial. They're becoming bigger sources of paranoia. Do you think that perhaps national conservatism is a sort of, what was it Gramsci said, not, not ready to be born yet? I, I don't think that's the situation. I think, unfortunately, that the lack of trust, which is primarily between the old liberal elites and which are increasingly turning to woke neo-Marxism as opposed to the old liberalism, but those old liberal elites, whether you know whether with the old liberalism or with the, the new woke neo-Marxism, their suspicion suspicion often becomes close to to simple hatred of the kind of national conservatism that is attractive and helpful to especially to working classes that hatred is paralyzing we don't see that in israel but i think in in america it is on constant and clear display i think in 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 britain it's somewhat similar maybe a little bit less so so national conservatism is intended to you know as you say to to realign the parties and to bring those parts of the population which want to see the national interest as opposed to participating in you know a global world order. The national inheritance is something that needs to be conserved and transmitted into the future. Those parts of the population are precisely the parts of the population that scare the elites to death. And that's the heart of the breakdown. And how do we get out of this? You know, even even something as simple as a bipartisan commission to to establish clear voting rules is at this point, you know, not not possible because the the nationalist side of the equation is simply considered conservative. You're right that it's all confused because of uh, what people think about Trump. But the moment that it looks like Trump is out of the picture, if there's, I mean, the, occasionally it looks like he's not not in the picture, and you'll notice that the moment that that happens the fire turns against Ron DeSantis or Tucker Carlson. Anyone who could be the the next nationalist leader immediately starts drawing the same kind of fire. So it it isn't about personalities. This is is a a great ideological confrontation. At the moment, there's quite a lot of appetite, I'd say, among people who oppose Trump, Republicans who oppose Trump, and obviously Democrats who oppose Trump, to boost DeSantis, who, who had a very good night last night, he had a big win. And is that simply because Trump is still in the way? And you think as soon as Trump gets out of the way, it'll be DeSantis? I'm not a pundit. I don't. I don't write a, you know, a column every week. So I, I, I feel myself freed from the obligation to make predictions about elect, the electoral fortunes yeah, of different, yeah. <laughs> of different personalities. I think that Trump opened the door for a set of ideas of uh, renewed nationalism and conservatism, which DeSantis is taking up and Tucker Carlson took up and many others have taken up. And J.D. Vance, who had a, who had a good night J- J.D. Night J.D. Too. Vance is, is a good friend to the national conservative movement and, you know, mm-hmm. has been at our conferences. And, you know, I, as a, a friend, I certainly feel great about his, his victory. But the important thing, I think, is there are many possible candidates. And if, if Trump is the candidate, then, you know, almost all national conservatives will, will rally around him. And if he's not, then there'll be someone else, and that someone else, you know, might be better. But 
this isn't going away. And, and national conservatism is going to be the, the heart of the Republican Party. I think eventually it's going to be the heart of the, the Tory party in the UK as well. It's, it's taking longer in Britain to, to find its way, but I think it's coming. Do you think um, conservatives and national conservatives tend to underestimate the power of, as you call it, the woke neo-Marxism and the power of the marriage between elites and woke neo-Marxism? I mean, an issue that's played out a lot in the midterms was abortion. And over the summer, Democrats got very excited because they thought the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade would lead to a huge upswell in pro-abortion activists uh, leading the charge, firing up the Democratic base. In the recent weeks, conservatives have started to poo-poo that idea and say, actually, you know, people really care about the economy. The results, as we know them so far, suggest that actually the Democrats were not entirely wrong to bet on abortion being a big winner for them. They were able to fire up the youth vote. Perhaps the youth are far more woke neo-Marxist and that movement is far more powerful than conservatives want to allow. Well, I, I don't know who, this, who are the conservatives underplaying it. The, <laughs> the year 2020 is a watershed, watershed year in the history of the United States and the UK and, and Western democracy. 2020 was the year that woke neo-Marxism swept through, in America certainly, the majority of the of institutions, public and private, and uh, brought them under its thumb. This is a, a cultural revolution which takes the old liberal consensus and, and consigns it, at least as hegemony of, of liberal ideas, consigns it to the dustbin of history. That liberalism is not coming back. I, I think it would be difficult to overstate how great a change this is. We, we are struggling to avoid having this cultural revolution become the, the dominant force in, in Western democracies. So the main question I think we should be asking is what force is powerful enough to stop it? In the United States, there are still significant pockets of Christian conservatism. It seems like the most likely source for, for something that can actually have a chance is a kind of a biblical public culture maybe not Christian in all places, maybe a pro-Christian public culture, which would be you know, alliance between Christians and those who simply think that a bit of religious conservatism and nationalism would be far better than what is coming. I think there are plenty of places in the United States where there's, there's still a chance of that. But you'll notice that I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that you know, it, it's clear that at the national level we, we, we have a clear path to, to defeating it. I don't, I, I don't think there is at the moment a clear path. I suppose what I meant, I mean, you're quite right to say that it is obviously a powerful force, but I suppose what I meant was that probably the assumption, maybe this is just my assumption and I'm putting it on others, is that regular folks, you know, good ordinary people, will reject culture wars Marxism, will say that, you know, will reject trans ideology and things like that, and they'll find the party that puts it most of them very off-putting. But actually it seems, you know, the regular folks aren't quite as sort of commonsensical as perhaps a lot of conservatives think. I think it's I think it's true. I think that in that in general, stiff adherence to ideology is a characteristic of educated elites much more than it is of, you know, the general population, which is rightly concerned with, you know, with more immediate problems of, you know, how how do I make ends meet at the end of the month and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. I think you know, the the election results are, are barely in and are not, are not finished, but I, I'm guessing that many of my 
American conservative friends will say that the reason that the Republicans were unable to to win under these circumstances, uh, these circumstances are, you know, on the one hand, cultural revolution, on the other hand, uh, an administration that is really quite extreme on, an, on, on a number of issues and on things having to do with the economy and crime. I mean, they just aren't very good. Why couldn't the Republicans win? Well, my guess is that many people are going to say precisely because the message was unclear. In part, elections are determined also just by you know the quirks of which, which candidates you pick. If you don't pick attractive candidates, then they tend to say foolish things and to lose elections. Mm. But in terms of ideas, I think that the Republican Party is is not yet is not yet a national conservative party. It doesn't yet have clear, coherent, and cohesive messaging, even on the most dramatic woke issues, where you know the, there's a clear majority, you know, like dramatic majorities in the United States that don't want critical race theory in their schools, don't want critical gender theory in their schools. This has been proved to be something that the broad public does care about at all levels. And yet the Republicans did not succeed in turning it into a central issue. On the uh, economy, you talked about people worrying about getting food on the table, making ends meet and so on. Is that where the Republican Party are really struggling to adapt to a national conservative view away from perhaps a neoconservative view that they had in the Bush era? They don't have a coherent identity on the economy because what was interesting about these midterms is that everybody agreed that Americans were most concerned about the economy. That message was clear, and everybody seemed to assume that would be good news for the Republicans because the public weren't very happy about Bidenomics. But it seems like they weren't very enthused about Republican economics either. I don't think we have an answer about whether the the public is enthused about national conservative economics because I very very much as in as in the UK where the the, the conservatives are still many of the parliamentary conservatives are still very deep in not just economic liberalism, but liberalism in general, a view that says, as long as we're concerned for the individual liberties and equalities of people, that's all we need in order to run our political life. And the the broader public doesn't think that individual liberties are the the only thing in political life. A concern to protect, for, just for example, to protect the, protect the manufacturing capacities of your country and therefore both the jobs of the, the ability to work and, uh, of many people and at the same time the ability to, to defend the country, to be a, a significant power in foreign, foreign policy when it's necessary. All of these things have to do with manufacturing. And we don't yet see, either in the UK or in the United States, a conservative party which understands why Trump was elected, understands why DeSantis is so popular. People see it. I mean, the, the candidates, they see it, but they don't understand it. They don't know how to imitate it. It doesn't come naturally to them. They, they're still thinking in terms of individual liberties as, you know, as the only principle that's important in politics. I'm sorry to keep asking you some horse racy type questions, but, but uh, this is the way my mind works. With Ron DeSantis, after his victory, and obviously now he's going to be sort of set up as, as the person to defeat Trump, do you see him as a, as a good vehicle, a better vehicle than Trump? for national conservatives? Well, look, it's, you're asking me a question that I can't know the answer to because it's... It, it's, it's predicting, uh, yeah. Yeah, if, look, I'll say things, I, and I think they're, they're pretty obvious. Uh, Trump is unparalleled and unrivaled in communicating these national conservative messages to a very broad electorate and exciting them about it. 
I wouldn't at the moment say that that I know of anyone who is as good as Trump is at at doing that. On the other hand, you know, Trump has obvious uh, obvious disadvantages. The the inability to concede the 2020 election is very problematic for you know for for democracy. The way, the way the American system works is you're allowed to appeal potential issues of fraud to to the courts and to the state legislatures. After that appeal is made, if the courts and the state legislatures don't want to overturn the election, then it's not going to be overturned. And every candidate simply has to say, well, I accept the judgment of, of the constitutional process and we will beat them next time and we'll be a loyal opposition. So look, the two things are, are both important. Finally, I'm going to ask you another sure. uh, question that you're not going to want to answer. Um, Joe, <laughs> Joe Biden, it seems, is unpopular, but not as unpopular as a lot of Republicans think that he is. To what extent do you think that he has, in a way, taken on some of the things that national conservatives worry about, in the sense that he got out of Afghanistan, he has kept some protectionist measures in place in the economy, he does talk about protecting American workers, he's not a neoliberal in the Bill Clintonite sense anymore, perhaps he was once, and that is why American voters aren't quite as appalled by him as a lot of Republican pundits are. It's certainly true that he pulled out of Afghanistan, but I, I think on the economic issues, the principal thing that people are noticing is vast, uncontrolled spending leading to menacing inflation. And, you know, it's, it's very difficult to see, see that as attractive to, to the national conservative base. You know, people like getting, getting checks in the mail if you know, if they've been forced to, to stop working. But the the coming economy in which industry no longer exists and the government spends trillions of dollars in order to attempt to keep you happy because you're not working and are not going to be working again, that doesn't look to me like an attractive, something that's attractive to anybody. I think this election was the Republicans' election to win or lose. The Democrats did not have an attractive candidate I don't think anybody thinks that they have an attractive leadership. I think that the Republicans lost it much more than the Democrats won it. And if we want to understand it, we'll have to look at the Republican message and the Republican choice of candidates and and understand what the Republicans did wrong. Yoram Hazoni, thank you very much for coming into The Spectator. I hope you find Britain to be as uh, dysfunctional politically as America is. I don't hope you do. But I expect you do. Do you? It's it's getting there. It's not it's not quite as dysfunctional. But We're both working but it, on our own it, 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 national it, dysfunction. Yes, yes. I I think we are in a way at a at a good moment for British conservatism. You know, I I don't wish the kind of disappointment and and chaos that the Tory party is going through. I I don't I don't wish it on anybody. But here here in London, my you know my impression as an outsider is that there are are all sorts of people. You know both in Parliament and among the intellectuals who are seriously rethinking based on the experiences of the last few months and the last few years. And uh, so I'm hopeful that, that Britain will be able to get on a, on a better track and maybe even sooner than the United States. Very interesting indeed. Thank you very much, Yoram. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. 